If you are in the kids' class from kindergarten up to sixth grade, you are welcome to go downstairs. I was just down there. It's nice. It's, it's a, lot of good, a lot of good stuff going on down there. So welcome. Welcome to Baptism Sunday. Um, we're going to do one more in the second service. Zelda, who's a UMass student. Some of you guys know Zelda. Amazing testimony, so you don't want to miss it. So we'll, we'll do the same kind of format. We'll, do, we'll sing one song. We'll do the baptism. So if you want to hang around for that, you can just stand around the back and then slip out. Uh, or you can listen to the Sermon on Samson twice. That's fine, too. I don't know. Um, so hopefully you're opening up your Bible to Judges 16. We're finishing up uh, Samson, which is it's kind of a end of Judges but then there's a little appendix uh, on, on the end of Judges that we'll look at next week. Those of you that, uh, if you're a student, you, some of you will be gone, some of you will be still around. But in a lot of ways, this is the end of Judges, where Judges has been cycling down, spiraling down. And the people of God are getting further and further away from God. And the judges that are being sent to deliver the people of God are really getting worse and worse. And Samson is the worst of the worst. And we've seen uh, him break lo- you know, laws in uh, the Mosaic Law. We've seen him break his own covenant uh, where he has taken a Nazarite vow. And we see him as a mirror of the people of God. So they're getting to see Samson inside covenant where he's untouchable and he's a victor. And then outside of his covenant where he is touchable. And he is taken into custody, and his eyes are gouged out, and he's mocked, and he's enslaved. And so they get to see this uh, one who seemed to be untouchable, but outside of the covenant of God, he is no longer untouchable. Um, but that's not the end of Samson's story. We just, re- we just read the end of Samson's story, and I'll pick up uh, verse 23, Judges 16, Now the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice. And they said, Our God has given Samson, our enemy, into our hand. And when the people saw him, they praised their god, for they said, Our God has given our enemy into our hand, the ravager of our country, who has killed many of us. So Samson's been a real pain for the Philistines. He's been untouchable. I mean, he single-handedly took out a thousand of their military personnel with the jawbone of a donkey. No one could take him down except Delilah. Delilah took him down. If you were here with us last week, you, you heard about through skillful manipulation, she figures out the, the secret of Samson's strength and she takes him down. But who's getting all the praise? Uh, Dagon, right? The the god of the Philistines, or at least one of the gods of the Philistines. I mean, everyone in the ancient world was a polytheist. Everyone had belief in multiple gods and goddesses. And they also believed that gods and goddesses were attached to particular people groups and were attached to the geographies of those particular people groups. And so when, when they would see a military victory, they would not only see them winning over their opponent, they would see their god or their goddess winning over their opponent. And so what they've been doing over these 20 years that Samson has been a judge, they've been interpreting Samson's victories as a victory for Yahweh God, the God of the Israelites. And they're right. They're right. Samson's victories should be attributed to Yahweh God. While on the other hand, Samson has been interpreting his own victories, his own wins, as attributed to his own strength. And he's wrong. 
and he's finding out in this part of his story that he is wrong. Now, who is this Dagon? Well, pictures that we have of Dagon, they kind of look like this. They're kind of like a merman. Uh, Philistines receive faring people. That kind of makes sense. But then there's some earlier writings that uh, speak of Dagon as more of an agricultural kind of a god. So he's probably morphing throughout history. Uh, probably in this, this particular context, he's probably more agriculture than he is uh, seafaring kind of a god. But whatever he is, he does seem to be, in extra-biblical literature where he's written about, he does seem to be sort of a king of the gods and goddesses, sort of like a Zeus. And so for him to get all the glory and all the praise makes sense for the Philistines to, to be looking to him as the reason for their victory over Samson. And evidently, worship of Dagon includes having merry hearts, which is code in the Bible for getting wasted. Right? That's what's happening. Verse 25, when their hearts were merry, they said, call Samson that he may entertain us. So they called Samson out of the prison and he entertained them. And they made him stand between the pillars. And, the, and Samson said to the young man who held him by the hand, let me feel the pillars on which the house rests that I may lean against them. And the house was full of men and women. All the lords of the Philistines were there. And on the roof, there were about 3,000 men and women who looked on while Samson entertained. So nothing says victory like a little mockery of the defeated enemy. They'd done everything they could to shame Samson and to shame his God. They'd gouged out his eyes, forced him into safe labor. Now they were bringing him out in the middle of a drunken orgy in order to be the evening's entertainment. I'm not sure exactly what Samson can do for entertainment. He has been known to write poetry, so maybe he, he gave a little poetry, an occasional song, who knows. Uh, now, you'd be tempted to say this is the lowest moment of Samson's life. I would argue that it's not. I said last week what was described in the earlier part of the chapter was the lowest point in Samson's life. I'll bring you back to that text, Judges 16, 20. She, Delilah, says, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. He awoke from his sleep and he said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. That was the lowest moment. When the Lord had left him. This is the most serious predicament that any human being could be in, is that the Lord has left you. It is... The predicament of every human being from birth is that you are separated from a holy God. Romans 3, starting with verse 9, Paul's writing about this predicament, and he's writing of both Jews and Greeks, which is code in the New Testament for all of humanity. He says, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the Apostle Paul describing all of humanity. Now, does that mean 
You can't be in that category and be a nice-ish person. No, you can be a nice-ish person. You can help old ladies across the street. You can give a few bucks to the Salvation Army, but you're not righteous. There is no one righteous. No, not one. Not in compared to a holy God. And that's the kind of righteousness that is a true standard of righteousness. And so... The only life that anyone can construct apart from God is a, is a life that is not righteous. And it is a life that continues to be separated from God unless God does something about it. So this moment at the Dagon party, it's not the worst moment in Samson's life. The reason that it's not the worst moment in Samson's life is because out of his humiliation, he prays. He prays. Now, he prayed once before, similar kind of situation where he's just killed the thousand with the jawbone of a donkey. He's so thirsty, he's about to die, and he cries out to God. He prays, and God answers him by giving him water. This is a similar kind of situation, right? He's desperate. Verse 28 of chapter 16, then Samson called to the Lord, and he said, Oh, Lord God, please remember me. Please strengthen me only this once. Oh, God that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Something's happening in Samson because of what's happening to Samson. Right? This, this, this very, very desperate situation that's all around him. It, on the surface, it looks like the worst of the worst of moments in his life. But it's doing something in him. It's humbling him. And out of his humility... He cries out to God. He prays to God. We talked about how last week how, how Samson was, was who he was by grace. By grace. He had been chosen by God before he was even born. He was chosen and given grace, but he didn't understand that. He did not understand that his whole, whole life, his strength, his gifts, his calling were all by grace alone. And that we too are that way, right? We, we, we are by grace alone. The reason we can actually take a breath right now, it's by grace. It's not because of something we can do. It's something that God gives us. And Samson doesn't seem ever to, to grasp that unless he's in this really tough situation where he realizes his need for God and he cries out to God. This is how Jesus can say things like, blessed are those who mourn. That word blessed is literally happy. Like, How could he say happy are those who mourn? Happy are those who are persecuted. Happy are you when others revile you. How does he say that? The reason he says that is because he knows that when we are suffering, when we are in desperation, that we are oftentimes, that's when we have an inward proclivity to cry out to God. And it is then and only then we, that we might be truly happy, happy in God, right? rejoicing in God. This is Samson's story. This is Israel's story. This is our story. If we're Christians, we know what this is like to get to the end of yourself, to know you have absolutely no hope unless God intervenes. You just heard this in these testimonies that were read. You heard this in J.L.'s story. This struck me as I'm thinking of Samson. I'm reading J.L.'s story. 
uh, that you just heard read. And she's saying, what followed this was over a decade of a downward spiral that would end with me circling the drain. I developed anxiety and depression. I struggled academically. I went through a parting phase, experimented very briefly with drugs. I drank more than I'd care to admit. I went through a series of toxic relationships, all of which involved some degree of abuse, emotional, physical, experienced assault, experienced failure. But all of that leading up to her saying, and it was also at this point sometime in the summer of 2017 that I decided I should probably pray for the first time in 14 years. It was either pray or walk out into traffic and find a quick end. She prayed. Now, the prayer, as is Samson's prayer, a little mixed in terms of motives, right? But she prays. And this is all of us. I mean, think of, think of Samson's prayer, right? He, he says, let me avenge my eyes. Like, really, Samson? Right? Your God's being made a mockery of. Your whole people, the whole people of Israel are endangered now from the Philistines, and all you can think about is your eyes? Like, come on! But God works with it. <laughs> God works with it, Right? It made me think of James 4.3 where James says, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Right? And, and, and so, yeah, Samson's he's, he's asking wrongly at some level, but then by God's grace, God's like, I, I'll work with it. I'll respond to it. I will give you even more grace. And so God answers Samson's prayer. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested. He leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's and upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed during his life. So Yahweh God is victorious. Yahweh God, the God of Israel, delivers Israel from their enemies. And he does this through a deliverer who's betrayed by a friend, mocked, tortured, and then killed. And that deliverance was not deserved by Israel. Does this sound familiar? Now, some things that we can draw from. There's many things we can draw from, but here's four. And some of this is review, because some of this was in the Thanksgiving sermons, and some of you weren't here. So I don't want you to miss this. This is good stuff. Number one, God's sovereign. God is sovereign. That means He rules over everything. Remember the promises that He made about Samson to his mother back in Judges 13. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he, get this, shall begin to save Israel from the land of the Philistines. He just said, this is what's going to happen. This kid is going to be born. It's going to be a deliverer. He's going to begin the deliverance from the people of Israel from the Philistines. Now, did that happen? Yes. That did happen. Did it happen without the full cooperation of Samson? Yes. Did it happen while watching Samson seemingly do whatever the heck he wanted to do with his free will, right? Yes. But did God somehow use 
this reprobate of, of a judge to actually accomplish the very thing that he said he was going to accomplish. Yes, that's sovereignty. That's sovereignty. No crazy politician, crazy religious leader, crazy anybody is going to sabotage God's so- sovereign plan. Take hope in that, would you? N- nothing can sabotage that plan. Number two, God's using His sovereignty to save. He's sovereignly saving His people. Like, don't, don't, don't miss that, right? He's sovereign. He rules everything, but He rules everything in a way that's good, right? It is good. It is, it is saving His people, and He's using these crazy circumstances of, of Samson sleeping with a Philistine woman who manipulates Him into telling secrets, and those secrets leading him to be placed in custody, have his eyes gouged out. But that embeds him into the drunken orgy to Dagon, which then leads to him killing more people in his death than he did in his military career. Who could have thought that up? I mean, come on. But in this, he saves his people. We see this at the cross. We get to see the cross in light of the resurrection. But if you're just standing at the cross, you're one of his followers, and you're watching the chaos of that Friday, you would not call it Good Friday. As you're watching the Romans and the Jews seemingly doing whatever the heck they want to do to the divine Son of God, to the point of torturing him, mocking him, hanging him on a cross, and killing him. But all along, what was God doing? using all that mess, all that chaos to sovereignly save. So God is sovereign, and God sovereignly saves. If if you have not yet received that salvation through faith, I want to encourage you to do that this morning. Some of you have been coming week in, week out, listening to preaching, talking to friends. This morning, as you've heard these testimonies, as you've seen these who've, who've, who've considered, and, and, and it's, yeah, it was a process and, and a struggle, and they read and they talked and they asked questions and they listened to sermons and, and they got to this place where they said, yes, I want to receive this by faith. I want to encourage you to do that this morning, to receive what Christ has done for you, the sovereign saving through the cross, receive that forgiveness and new life that he's made available for you this morning. This is why, again, these are being baptized. They're acknowledging this, that that it was God who initiated with them, God who pursued them, God who drew them to himself, God who saved them and gave them this new life that's true both in this life and the life to come. Number three, because God is sovereign and he's sovereignly saving, nothing can shake his ongoing commitment to his people. Nothing. Nothing. Hear that again. If God is sovereign and God is sovereignly saving His people, there's nothing that can shake His ongoing commitment to save His people. Right? Verse 20 says that God had left Samson, but really He hadn't, had He? He didn't leave him. What He did was allow him to go through distress, which which caused him to then cry out for deliverance and for God to meet that. It's what Israel is watching as well. They're watching Samson seemingly get kicked out of the covenant. But then they go, whoa, wait a minute. He was never kicked out of the covenant. He's being disciplined. And then he's crying out to God in his distress. And God is meeting him in that 
the stress, and it was an opportunity for them to see yet again, God is committed, absolutely committed to save his people. And yes, he's going to take us through difficult times. Yes, there are days when he's disciplining us to bring us to a point of distress, to bring us to a point of crying out to God. But that is a place of life. Living life apart from God, that's not life. And so he's, he's willing to take us through whatever he needs to, to bring us to an intimate relationship with, with him. But he's, he never leaves us in the midst of that. He never leaves Samson. He never leaves Samson. We hear this kind of talk in, in Paul's language in Romans 8. And he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Right? So he's kind of drawing attention to this idea of God sovereignly saving. Right? And he says, it's God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So he's, he's going back to the sovereign plan of God. Look at look what God did to save us through his son on the cross. And then in light of that, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see what he's doing there? He's hearkening back to the sovereign plan of God, the sovereign saving of his elect, and he's saying, nothing will shake that. And it's not because... His people are, are so strong, and we're so grounded, and we're so committed. It's because God is sovereignly saving. And because God is sovereignly saving, nothing, nothing will shake His commitment to saving His people, both now and in the life to come. So if those things are true, He's sovereign, He's sovereignly saving, there's nothing that can shake His commitment to, to saving His people, then number four is true. Then we never stop fighting the good fight. We never stop fighting the good fight. Now, this is one of the things I think is positive about Samson. He's a fighter. He's a fighter in a time when no one wanted to fight. Everyone in Israel was cowering. We've talked about this multiple times, where, where they get the opportunity to engage with the Philistines and to get them out of the promised land and to do the very thing that God had called them to do, and they wouldn't do it. And Samson would do it. Even if he had to do it by himself with the jawbone of a donkey, he's like, I'll do it. I will engage. Now, it wasn't always pretty, and it wasn't always great motives, but he was a fighter. And so as, as we reflect on our own salvation given to us sovereignly by a God who is unswervingly committed to save us right, in this life and the life to come, it should give us an invincibility, a Samson-like Sanctified, yes, but Samson-like invincibility where we are willing to engage in the battle, the battle against sin in our own souls and the battle for the souls of others who don't yet know Jesus. And no matter how hard that is or where God calls us to go do that, we don't stop fighting. We keep fighting the good fight. You hear this language in 1 Timothy 6 where 
The, the Apostle Paul is exhorting the young pastor Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He's, he's doing the same thing. He, he, he's saying, Timothy, take hold of the eternal life that you've already, you already have. You made a good confession. You, you were baptized. You, you became a Christian. That is solid in eternity. And so if this is solid and this is solid, then in the middle of that, you can fight the good fight, no matter how hard and difficult that might be. And so some of you this morning, you, you come in, you, you're discouraged. I mean, I need this pep talk every day to get up and engage, right, both with the, the sin of my own soul, but also to engage on behalf of the souls of others, whether it be praying and being persevering in that or, 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 or demonstrating the gospel with acts of service or, or proclaiming the gospel with our words. And we get up every day and we do that again and again and again and again and again. And we do it no matter what, no matter how hard it might be. I mean, a fight, to, to talk about the Christian life being a fight, that sounds hard. Yeah, it is. But we're able to do that, not because of some strength within our own selves, but because of the sovereign saving of God. So again, if, if you've yet to receive that by faith this morning, I want to encourage you to do that. If your eyes are opening and you, you begin to see the glory of this gospel, this good news, to receive that by faith this morning. If you are a Christ follower this morning, let's fight the good fight. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Samson. As, as crazy as it is, as, as so much uh, chaos and carnage that we see in, in his story, Lord, we see your hand. It's a steady hand. You, you, you are absolutely committed to the sovereign saving of your people. And then we look at our own lives, Lord, and we see all the carnage and chaos of our own lives. And yet we see your steady hand. And we see it no more than when we see it at the cross, where the chaos and carnage seems to have gone to new heights, and yet, in the midst of it, you're sovereignly saving, and you're doing that for us in this room, for those on our campuses, for those in these communities, for those in the nations. And so we give you glory and praise and honor, and we also, in response to that, Lord, engage in the fight the battle within our own souls, and the battle for the souls of others. So, Lord, as we sing these praises to you, God, would you encourage the hearts in the room, Lord, to continue uh, to engage in what you've called them to. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.